Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening at the beginning of a new week. Plenty on for you tonight. I must begin though by congratulating the rugby league team at the bottom of the Blue Mountains. Penrith, three grand finals in a row, now two back-to-back premierships in front of a crowd of 82,415. The Parramatta fans were there in droves, but their hopes turned to dust. Penrith piled on five unanswered tries until the final fairly meaningless minutes. Penrith were magnificent. Congratulations to Ivan Cleary, the coaching staff and the team, but congratulations also to Brad Arthur and the Parramatta team on a splendid season, and the coach answered his critics in the only way possible. And well done to the Newcastle Knights, who won their first women's premiership, also beating the Parramatta Eels 32-12. to Well, that has ended our victory spirits. The Reserve Bank has jacked up interest rates by 0.25 of a percent. It is the highest increase since mid 2013. I have problems with this kind of policy determination. We don't yet know what impact the previous increases have had, and I'm not confident the Reserve Bank, presiding over so many previous failures, aren't panicking. I'll talk tonight to the Federal Minister for Government Services and NDIS, Bill Shorten, about the Optus fiasco, amongst other things. How the CEO, Kelly Bayer-Rosmarin, still has a job, I don't know. She was swanning around the Southern Highlands at the weekend, while at least 2.1 million personal identification details, including 150,000 passports and 50,000 Medicare numbers have been stolen in an Optus data hack. Bayer Rosmarin defended the company's communication with customers. Well, these customers want to know what other data is unsafe and all Australians want to know whether business which retains this data has appropriate security standards in place. Bill Shorten is not impressed. I'll talk to him about that and other matters. A dreadful story out of Indonesia at the weekend, 174 people have died when thousands of fans at a football stadium invaded the pitch. Police fired tear gas after two police officers were killed in what the police said was a riot. The end result was in a stadium of 42,000, 3,000 stormed the pitch. Vehicles were torched, including a police truck, and in the crush, 174 people have died. Many of the victims trampled to death or choked to death. President Wadodo has ordered a safety review. I think you'll need a little bit more than that. The good weather of the weekend, we're told, is about to end. Get ready for rain, thunder and possible flooding. The ground's so damn wet in many parts of New South Wales that the water has nowhere to go. So floods are inevitable. There are currently 14 flood warnings in place currently across New South Wales. Well, tonight, along with Bill Shorten, I'll cross to the Conservative Party conference in Birmingham, where our man on the ground there, the very politically aware Jake Thrupp, will bring us up to date on what are historic times for the Conservative Party conference. The new Prime Minister may be finished before she's begun. I'll have something further to say about the voice to Parliament. There can only be one sensible answer, and that's to say no. I'll also look at the appalling flaws in this National Anti-Corruption Commission legislation. On both issues, the opposition are going to have to step into the ring. Well, we are the voice of common sense. You're watching ADH. I'm Alan Jones. The Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, says Australians will go to a referendum on the Indigenous voice as early as July 1 next year, giving the yes and no campaigns nine months to make their cases. Anthony Albanese says there's not a day to waste. And this was enough time, he said, to win people over. Well, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. Because while the so-called debate about a voice to the parliament is only in its infancy, it's clear that some haven't shaken off their bad habits. If you dare to argue that there is no moral or ethical base to divide us by race, and that nothing would make constitutionally enshrined racial division acceptable, you're called a racist. Daniel Wilde, the Deputy Executive Director of the Institute of Public Affairs, as I told you last week, has sent every single member of parliament a research video 
explaining why the voice to parliament will permanently divide Australians by race. It features the newly minted Indigenous Senator, outstandingly credentialed Jacinta Nampajimpa Price, along with the Indigenous research scholar to whom we've also spoken, Dr Anthony Dillon. Jacinta Price has always contended that a voice would imply Indigenous Australians were a separate entity from other Australians. But she makes the more important point that it would be almost impossible for a single voice to adequately represent the diverse and disparate communities contained within Australia. Most importantly, she argues that the voice will make no practical difference to the lives of Indigenous Australians and therefore should not be constitutionally enshrined. Now, we can't boast about being a democracy if we deny the opportunity for democratic debate where different viewpoints can be presented as opposed to the hackneyed argument that if you dare to vote no or argue why we should vote no, then you're branded a racist. The final report on this to the government argues, and I quote, engagement with the national voice would ideally occur early in the development of relevant laws and policies to allow for a partnership approach, partnership to government. The Australian parliament and government would be quote unquote obliged to ask the national voice for advice on a defined and limited number of proposed laws and policies that overwhelmingly affect Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. There would also be a quote, expectation to consult the national voice based on a set of principles on a wider group of policies and laws that significantly affect Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, unquote. So the government would be obliged to consult this national voice. Who consults you about issues that, quote, overwhelmingly affect you? Interest rates, energy policy, the education curriculum, things which overwhelmingly affect all Australians. Is the federal government, quote unquote, obliged to consult you? The final report on this Indigenous voice opens up by saying that, quote, an Indigenous voice will overcome their present level of exclusion from decision making. Are they excluded more than other Australians? I'd like someone to consult me about the national curriculum, about propaganda in the classroom, about the level of government spending and debt, but I don't get consulted because we elect people to represent us. There are 11 Indigenous people in the parliament. Why in our liberal democracy should some citizens be treated differently from others based on race? What would happen if parliament overrode the views of the voice? Oh, the courts would go mad. It is impossible to believe that those who call themselves politically conservative fall into line with this stuff. Let's be sure it's intended here. The report to parliament says, and I quote, the national voice would provide the mechanism to ensure Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples have a direct say on any national laws, policies and programs affecting them, unquote. But other Australians don't get a direct say. As Jacinda Price says, not all Indigenous people are a homogenous group. I understand the voice is intended to be about 24 people. No one knows how they're to be selected and who will vote and whether they'll pay their own way or be on parliamentary salaries, whether there'll be an electoral role for the voice based on race, where only one race can vote. How does that small group of people, the voice, believe it can realistically represent the feelings of all Aboriginal people? As I've said, there's no excuse for any federal parliamentarian to be ignorant of the issues. We know they don't read much. Many of them take their backbencher salary of 217,000 and merely nod and say yes when they're told to. But the research video that's gone to every federal parliamentarian demonstrates how the voice will permanently divide Australians by race. It explains that a fundamental principle of the Australian way of life is that every Australian gets the same say over our nation's future. No matter your race, ethnicity, ethnicity, religion or gender, your voice matters and it matters equally. Is there a federal politician, especially amongst the coalition, who would dispute that? But of course, big corporates, many in the media, sporting codes, civic organisations and universities don't even want to debate the issue 
that inserting an Indigenous voice into the Constitution would provide separate political and legal rights to one group of Australians based on their race. That was once called apartheid. It represents the kind of division of Australian society that we're supposed to be strenuously seeking to repair. It's unarguable that just asking the question of Australian people at a referendum will permanently divide Australians. It is impossible to understand how any responsible Australian could argue that a yes vote won't lead to the establishment of a divisive race-based component in our parliament, worse than that, enshrined in our constitution. Again, as the IPA have correctly explained to every federal parliamentarian, to argue that we can't make up our mind until there are more details is to concede that there are details which would make constitutionally enshrined racial division acceptable, even desirable. Put simply, to say no to the voice is to say yes to racial equality. But more importantly, if you don't know what this will mean to Australians, then like me, you must vote no. Look, it does seem an understatement to say that the new Albanese government faces a bottleneck of legislation and no doubt a few political fights in the final three months of the year. There are only a handful of joint parliamentary sitting days remaining this year. The Prime Minister is heading off again for the G20, APEC and East Asia summits in November. But the business of government at home is becoming very demanding. I mentioned earlier about the Integrity Commission. Then there is the abolition of the cashless welfare card, childcare, social housing, a referendum to enshrine a constitutional voice to parliament, negotiating an AUKUS nuclear submarine deal, rising energy prices, higher interest rates, soaring inflation and cost of living pressures, a housing downturn and rental crisis. It's exhausting just thinking about it. The government has made an excellent start, as I've said many times, with the rhetoric. The right language about the death of the Queen, no need for haste on the Republic issue, warning Australians that the government can't go on paying their wages. But the one man saddled with a hell of a job on issues that merit significant discussion and debate is the former leader, Bill Shorten, who's the Minister for Government Services, which is almost everything, and the Minister for the National Disability Insurance Scheme. Bill Shorten's been in Parliament since 2007. He went within a breath of becoming Prime Minister. Many would say, and are still saying, that he has a greater grasp of the issues than anyone in government. He joins me. Mr Shorten, thank you for your time. Um, and I'm really grateful that you're here. One issue unrelated to portfolio, if I'd quickly deal with it, is the length of the parliamentary term. When will we get a debate about the fact that a three-year term cripples any government's capacity to get the job done? Well, you've indicated we've already got a heavy workload, so I'm not sure that's going to be dealt with in this term. Uh, I don't believe that's on the agenda. For myself, I went on the record when Malcolm Turnbull was leader of the, of the of Prime Minister, and I said we should have four-year terms, but I couldn't interest him in doing anything about it then when uh, they were in charge. I do think a longer term, as a personal opinion, makes sense, but that isn't on our first-term agenda. And also, um, as you said, there are plenty of uh, issues to do with cost of living and uh, mortgage stress and how people are coping, which is mm. the priority for the yes. government. Just for our viewers, I just would show Mr Shorten understands this, but if you've got a controversial or unpopular issue like tax reform or changing the GST, by the time a government debates it, gets it through the parliament, they're then facing another election when the odium of tough decisions is in the forefront of a voter's mind. So basically you're in favour of a four-year term. I've said that before on the record, but I accept that it's not a priority for this government. Uh, we have to, I think, deal with the issues that are in front of us. We made a series of promises at the last election that uh, defines our work for this term. Also, we've got a lot of uh, crisis popping up from the dreadful floods mm. right through to uh, mm. the Optus breach. So mm. there's plenty to be done. and. Yeah. And at the core of it all is our cost of living. Yeah, I'll come to those in a minute. I might just congratulate you, though, on what you said at the time about closing down the culture war. You reversed the trial of consent forms using gender-neutral language so that parents adding newborn children to their Medicare cards don't have to describe themselves as the birthing parent. I mean, Bill Shorten, what's wrong with the word mother? 
Well, in this case, there was nothing wrong with it at all. Um, what I did, though, and I don't want to reopen culture wars, is that I actually, the old form had three choices, birthing mother, father, or other, and you could self-describe. Yep. So I'm all for inclusion, and how you want to describe yourself, frankly, I'm relaxed Correct. with. Correct. Uh, but I think mothers, women, have, being a mother's a big enough challenge, and I thought it was appropriate they could at least have their name on the form if that's the box you wanted to tick. I agree entirely. If you want to call yourself anything, but don't eliminate the notion of your capacity to call yourself mother. Just a quick one, though. The United Nations, to me, on many fronts, is a rather loopy outfit. They've now got these guidelines for their staff members where you can't say guests are cordially invited to attend with their wives. You must say guests are cordially invited to attend with their partners. Are we going to go down that track? No, I see. I hate to disappoint you when I was on such a good run with you, but again, if someone uh, wants to be known as someone's partner, I'm relaxed with that, Alan. Yeah, it doesn't I agree. Me. But it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be the only option. Well, I guess part of the challenge is un uh, birth is a pretty amazing thing, and um, I think we can afford to have three three different boxes in that. But it's just that the United Nations, it. Bill, the United Nations said they don't want you to use man-made. It's got to be human-caused or. They can't say a staff member in the Antarctic earns less than he would in New York. They've got to say a staff member in the Antarctic earns less than one would in New York. I mean, someone's got to put to this stop to this nonsense, haven't they? Well, you, some of your listeners will be relieved. I'm not running for Secretary General of the United <laughs> Nations, so it'll be up to other people to that, sort that out. That I could be later. Up. That could be later, couldn't it? <laughs> no, no, no. I just um, I can think of other candidates. The, um, I'm quite keen to just make sure that... Um, Services Australia and government services that people feel included, not excluded. And this was one for the mums, and that's okay. And if you want to call yourself something else, as I, you know, I got bombarded by different points of view on this when we changed the form back to the original form, it was that um, you call yourself what you want. I'm not trying to stop you, but there's lots of people who want to call themselves mums. And I think when it comes to something as amazing as the birth of a child, I think we could let that one go. Good on we? you. Good on you. You've done a user service audit of MyGov. You're talking about ministerial mm. responsibility. Is it as you mm. wanted it to be? You said at the time you needed to be a much more seamless exercise. I mean, people were waiting up to an hour. You said, I'm amazed there's not more rage out there. Are you happy with what, how MyGov is now responding to those who want to use it? It's a work in progress. There has been some quite a bit of work done to move people online. My view of government services is that a lot of people are getting used to going online. So we wanna make sure the online services are efficient and don't lead to delay or frustration. Uh, but also there's a proportion of the population who don't feel comfortable going online. We have to make sure that we have offices and real people that people can visit. I've even uh, reached out to some of Australia's leading homelessness charities and. Uh, the, the salvos at the top end of Burke Street in Melbourne and Bill Cruz in Sydney and Father Bob down in South Melbourne, uh, the Vinnies up in Darwin. And we've embedded trained Centrelink stuff so they can go out at night, talk to the homeless people. So I want everyone in Australia to get a fair go and access government services. So I, we'll do a lot more on MyGov though. And we've got David Thody and some pretty expert reviewers to see how do we make it better. For me, I've got a simple aspiration. Is it the best in the world? And then it's only good enough. Only then is it good enough for Australians. Good on you. Good on you. Well, you're doing a terrific job on that front. Now, Optus, you've called on this mob to understand the damage they've done for 10 million Australians in terms of their personal identification. The chief executive, Kelly Bayer Rosemarin, didn't seem to be too bothered about what you were saying. She was in the New South Wales Southern Highlands at the weekend with a bodyguard in tow. What's all that about? You'd probably have to ask um, the CEO. The issue with Optus, and you know, I'll, I'll put it really plainly for yourself and, and your listeners, uh, Alan, is that the senior management of Optus are not the victims. The victims are actually the customers of Optus. Uh, well, I think the information flow had been slow uh, to people who are Optus customers. You, we can't, MPs can't turn on their email boxes now without getting a frustrated Optus customer not saying, I haven't heard anything, I don't know what's going on. Yeah. For me, it's I, I'm not getting into the personalities of the senior leadership of Optus, but it's not about them. It's about, um, it's day 13, they've now provided us with information, that's fine. I want to make sure that no one can hack, use a Medicare number and hack into someone's 
you know, personal medical details. I want to make sure that if you've given them your passport, that they're not able to use that to, you know, steal someone's uh, identity. So we've just got to all work together here. Where does the privacy commissioner fit into all of this if someone outfit like Optus can't safeguard personal data? Well, Mark Dreyfus, the Attorney General, has been working with the Privacy Commissioner. I do think that Optus have been working with the Privacy Commissioner, so that's one that's one good thing. Um, so I think the AFP have, you know, obviously investigating this matter. They've set up a task force, uh, Operation Hurricane, to identify who's broken the law and given so many millions of Australians uncertainty. I think there's some bigger questions here as well beyond trying to triage the problem. It is when big corporations get people's ID, you know, so in, to get their 100 points to access their service, for example, how long should they be allowed to keep that data after the purpose Good for point. which it was given? Good point. As expired. And once you're an ex-customer of these businesses, wouldn't that automatically yes. say to the business they're not allowed to use that data? And so I, I, I think that that conversation is now happening. The Europeans have got, um, I think, better protections than we have here in Australia for people's privacy. Uh, these are all propositions that are going to have to unfold now. I think this Optus uh, debacle is um, its a wake-up call. The Privacy Commissioner has said, though, that she's limited in terms of penalty, civil penalty, to $2.1 million. Mm. Now, you know, the Singapore owners of Optus won't even worry about $2.1 million. Is that penalty enough? Well, I think a lot of people would say it's not. Maybe um, my colleague Mark Dreyfus will work on that aspect of the reform. But I think sensible Australians will listen to the Privacy Commissioner's observations and take them pretty seriously. I yeah, mean, it, it, what I, we have to be careful of here is you don't want to have the corporate equivalent of a speeding ticket. You want to have more impact than that yeah. when, you, when a problem like this. Yeah, I mean, when you've got driver's licences, passports, I've just had random people ringing me and saying, well, I'm an Optus person. I, I don't know what to do. Has someone got hold of my passport number, my Medicare number? These questions have to be answered by Optus, don't they? Well, they're the ones who know what's been hacked and yes. what hasn't. Um, we've got data from Optus uh, overnight. 1am um, senior staff of mine have procured the uh, material and uh, they're going through it. As I understand, uh, about 36,900 Medicare records have yeah. been um, breached. Uh, I would just say, just without boring people to tears, just because a hacker's got your Medicare number doesn't mean they can get into your records because we have a multi-factor identification system. But we still want to know if anyone's accessing the numbers. The other thing for anyone, if Optus notifies you that you're one of the people whose material has been breached, uh, they can contact Medicare and we will replace their card and they'll get a, a, a different number or a variation of a different number. And that can happen within three to four weeks. Yeah, these reassurances, Minister, are very important. Look, you and I have spoken previously about this robo-debt scheme, subsequently ruled mm. unlawful, which used an automated system that measured a person's mm. average income, and the Morrison government used robo-debt to claim hundreds of millions of dollars in alleged debts from 433,000 Centrelink recipients. Now, the government settled a class action in 2020 for a total cost of $1.8 billion. Uh, what are you seeking from this Royal Commission? This is not just about the victims getting their debts written off or the money they repaid being paid back to them. That That's happened. Mind you, that's only happened because of the class action, not because the Morrison government worked out it was wrong. Now, this is about how can we have an unlawful scheme mm. raised where debts are raised, the power of the state is used to raise unlawful debts against nearly half a million Australians, many of them on the, you know, the, the, on the fringes on the, who are vulnerable. It's unlawful. How does a government, first of all, conceive of an unlawful illegal scheme? And then after four and a half years of complaints, court decisions, learned experts, advocates, the opposition, the individuals complaining, for four and a half years, they just stubbornly ignored all of the criticism of the scheme. So how did they get it so wrong in the first place? Who didn't check the legality or ignored it? But then secondly, we still don't know who decided for four and a half Absolutely. years to ignore the voices of the people. Yeah. I mean, that's the guts of it, isn't it? They had legal yeah. advice that the scheme was wrong and they persisted with it. Now, I note in comments that you've made, you're saying that these dire 
financial circumstances that were people, innocent people were forced into caused trauma, mm. which has been linked mm. to cases of suicide, depression and family breakdown. And you're aware of that. I've met um, personally two families who believe that the government debt collection processes sadly tipped them over the edge. I just say to people who say, oh, you can't know that. We don't know why someone takes their own life, but the families, the people closest to them, say that the pressure from the government was a ex aggravating factor, which has then unfortunately led them to the most terrible of outcomes. But the trauma isn't just for that most extreme case. There'd be people at university who were, you know, working some weeks, but other weeks were eligible for modest income support payments. When they had a debt order against them, they couldn't get a job. There's other people, you know, a lot of proud people rely on Centrelink as a last resort. And then they've got the stigma of being viewed as welfare cheats because somehow they've gained yeah. some unfair advantage because the computer said they did and no one bothered to check if it was true. So will we know why the government persisted with the scheme even after this tidal wave of complaints? I mean, there were about 30 cases, as I understand it, and the Minister of Appeal Tribunal ruled illegal. Will the Commission investigate whether ministers or senior public servants deliberately ignored the findings of the AAT or other legal advice about robo-debt? We will get to the bottom of it, absolutely. Catherine Holmes uh, is a formidable judge, uh, head of the Queensland Supreme Court of Appeal. Uh, she's politically completely independent of all points of view, uh, of all parties. Uh, we will get to the bottom of this. For those who say, oh, well, they got their money back, we don't need to worry anymore about it, I just say when a government systemically uh, breaks the law for four and a half years against hundreds of thousands of people and it ignores uh, legitimate uh, questioning and evidence about the wrongness or the unlawfulness of the scheme, something was really wrong. And the parliament couldn't force the government to get back on track. It took a class action to force the government to repay the money. So the parliament couldn't do it. It took uh, the Victorian Legal Aid Commission to take the uh, government of the day to court to force them to get some rulings that it was unlawful. And at no stage has any senior public servant or then minister ever said how this came to be. And it's as, it's as simple as we don't want this mistake to happen again. Computer algorithms are part of the future of this nation, but we need to make sure we put in place the checks and balances that we just don't simply assume that if the machine says the person's wrong, that we believe the machine and not the person. Well, well, just before you go, does that mean that former Prime Minister Morrison and colleagues like Alan Tudge, Stuart Robert and Christian Porter will be called to give evidence to the Royal Commission? That will be a matter for the Royal Commissioner. Um, the evidence will go where the evidence goes. But to be very clear to listeners, Australian people have never had a satisfactory explanation of how an illegal scheme came to be created and then run unchecked for four and a half years. And I mean, uh, what's the government, the then government going to say? Either we didn't, we either were negligent or we were deliberately unlawful. Mm. I don't see what any other explanation Absolutely. can be, but that's for the Royal Commission to get to. Great to talk to you. Look, we'll have you back shortly to talk about the NDIS, which is another major issue. You've got a lot on your plate. Appreciate your time and appreciate the clarity of the explanations you've given to us. Thank you. There he is, Mr. Bill Shorten. I spoke last week about the federal government's anti-corruption commission. I said then it was unsatisfactory in its present form. I made the point that it would be able to start its own investigations without a referral. The body would have retrospective powers. Now, I've mentioned several times that the Liberal Party's DNA is opposed to retrospectivity. I cannot for the life of me understand why the opposition would say publicly it is prepared to support the legislation. It may be prepared to support the concept, as do I, but surely it must oppose the detail and what is worse, the absence of detail. The National Anti-Corruption Commission, with the acronym NACC, lacks the check, checks and balances of the New South Wales ICAC. Yet we have seen what a disgrace that has been on so many fronts. Innocent people publicly paraded as guilty. I mentioned there are authenticated reports that 128 people have been defamed or destroyed by the New South Wales ICAC. There are no exoneration protocols. 
I mentioned last week that three South Australian King's councils, two men and one woman, have written that without adequate safeguards, corruption commissions have the capacity to operate as a star chamber and have consequences that are significant and irreparable. Their words, and I quote, some commissions outside South Australia hold public hearings that result in public humiliation and the destruction of reputations. The processes invoked by corruption commissions bear no relationship to fair processes that a court must apply, unquote. I said earlier the concept may be worthy of support, but the detail, as I currently see it, is not. This is where the opposition should strike without fear of being politically branded. The first point to make is a straightforward one. There is very little on the public record to suggest that public life in Australia is rife with corruption or that matters have gone unexplored because of the absence of an anti-corruption body. And when you look at the New South Wales experience, one can hardly be inspired to believe that these bodies add much to public life or give value to money for the millions of dollars that are spent on them. This Dreyfus outfit has a budget of $262 million. And the headlines at the weekend were quite chilling. Dreyfus has warned, that's the Attorney General, that quote, everyone needs to watch out for the proposed anti-corruption commission, which will be given, we are told, spy-like powers to intercept encrypted messages from workers in the public sector. Dreyfus said all members of the Commonwealth public sector would be subject to surveillance. How on earth do you do your job? Dreyfus went on in threatening language, quote, I think everyone needs to watch out, unquote. And he acknowledged that this commission could gather sensitive national security information if, it is, if it's surveilled members of the Defence Force and spy agencies. This is not something that Peter Dutton can support. He's a former Defence Minister. He is making some sensible noises, Peter is, albeit tentative, but this unelected outfit should not have access at all to sensitive and potentially classified information. There has to be a line drawn, surely, between corrupt behaviour and the normal business of politics. As I mentioned last week, the former Australian Federal Police Commissioner, Mick Kelty, has rightly argued that such a commission could be politically weaponised to unfairly destroy the careers of high profile people. And this, if, as I have said, this commission can start its own investigations without a referral and apparently without the need for any evidence of a criminal offence, then the warning of Mick Kelty is valid. Are we headed for the Berejiklian-like inquisitorial show trial? Or are we serious about serious criminal investigation? But the serious business of criminal investigation must surely remain a matter for the police. The judgment, a matter for a court of law. But Attorney General Dreyfus is saying this NACC will have a free reign to decide how and on what it spends its $262 million budget. It seems open slather for a get square if it will investigate based on tip-offs from the public. It'll have the power to obtain a warrant to tap the telephone communications, even of the Prime Minister. The power to access emails, search histories, private dinner conversations, and as a splendid editorial in the Australian newspaper argued recently, surveil, quote, intimate discussions of politicians and public servants and their contacts, unquote. It'll be able to search department offices, with the exception of a very limited range of prohibited areas. MPs' offices can be searched with a warrant, as well as the offices of publicly owned media companies like the ABC and SBS. Are we entitled to warn about the consequences of the misuse of these extravagant powers? How can company executives, or indeed anybody, have confidence in dealing with government, knowing that they're being spied on. And the valid question must be asked, how can members of parliament police a body that's primarily designed to investigate them? As the excellent editorial in The Australian says, quote, left unclear is whether journalists can be forced to submit to examination in a star chamber environment, denied the right to legal representation and told they can't tell anybody about their dealings with investigators, including partners and employers, unquote. 
This is Kremlin-like stuff. How could MPs advocate for and represent their constituents, lobby for resources in the members' electorate, which is what they've been elected to do? Do we have public hearings to satisfy the baying mob? Do we have New South Wales ICAC revisited? Now, the government might go on about election promises, but we were never promised any of this stuff. Justice must be done in a court of law. This outfit can't become a law unto itself. I have no confidence at this stage that the opposition are on top of these concerns, but I can assure you I will keep at it. Well, we've heard the news in Australia today, interest rates are up by a quarter of a percentage point to 2.6%, the official cash rate that is. It is the highest in nine years, and there's talk that by the middle of next year, it'll go to 4.2%. As I said earlier, I have a problem with this policy formulation. The aim, of course, is to use the blunt instrument of interest rate increases to crush inflation. But what we don't know is the impact of the already announced interest rate increases, given that they take some time to feed into the system. Nonetheless, a string of international events will be making our Reserve Bank nervous, not the least of which is the mini-budget from the new UK Chancellor, Kwasi Kwarteng, who a week ago unveiled plans for £45 billion, which is about $78 billion Australian dollars, of unfunded income tax cuts on top of a £150 billion two-year energy subsidy. That prompted fears that inflation, already nearing 10%, would climb in Britain higher and force the Bank of England to lift interest rates even higher than expected. To cover the plans on top of already large budget deficits will require a huge increase in government borrowings. Well, all hell seems to have broken loose. The value of the British pound tumbled. The Bank of England went on a 65 billion pound bond buying spree, but a new term may have been created. Dario Perkins is a London-based economist who previously worked with the British Treasury and helped design the structure of the Bank of England's Interest Rate Setting Committee. He described how the trust government was being viewed by creating a new term, the moron risk premium, being punished for, quote, moronic policies. He said, the problem isn't that the UK budget was inflationary, it's that it was moronic. He said, in a small open economy that seems to be run by morons, gets a wider risk premium on its assets, unquote. Well, the young man who replaces me on this program when I'm unavoidably absent is, as you know, Jake Thrupp. He's in charge of programming with ADH, but he has a splendid and incisive political mind. He is at the Conservative Party conference in Birmingham, and he's in the middle of all of it, and he joins me. It's morning time over there for him, late for us. Jake, thank you for your time. Oh, so what's the mood there? From this far away, there's talk that the Trust Quarteng government may be finished before it's begun. Yeah, well, Alan, good evening to all your viewers. Basically, uh, they say that Liz Trust, if she survives past Christmas, that it will be a miracle. They think the new Chancellor, uh, the equivalent of a treasurer for us, uh, they think he's gone, quasi. The thing with the mini budget, it was rushed, ad hoc, no communication and all funded with by borrowing more money, which isn't really the conservative way, as you know. Uh, and everyone who I talk to here about Quasi, it's very interesting. There's no doubt that he's smart, uh, but he lacks attention an attention span. He d doesn't really like to talk about policy issues when you're out with him. He likes to instead talk about all the history books that he's written and, and just very light on detail, doesn't really want to get into political messaging or anything. And this is what has really undersold the mini budget. And people just don't really understand where the money's coming from. They don't also understand that at a time when people on average or below average uh, incomes are struggling to put food on the table and petrol in their cars, why the hell would you give a, a, a would you give a tax cut uh, to the top end of town basically uh, 45 uh, to 45 percent 40 percent 
And this will... This only millionaires will benefit from this. Uh, they from have this backed cut. down on that, so though, Jake, was... haven't they? They, they? they seem to have backed down within, within a matter of days. They have to set it aside. Yeah. Now they're not going to reduce the top rate from 45 to 40. But I just want to ask you this. There's a YouGov poll last week gave Labor a 33-point lead over the Conservatives. As you move around the conference and talk to all of these people from top to bottom, um, mm. are they aware of this Tory meltdown? Yes, they are. They are. I was actually speaking to some people last night out at a dinner and they said that last year's conference, totally different mood. Uh, Boris would uh, walk in to any room that he wanted uh, and and would basically arrive to uh, everyone standing and cheering him on. This year, very divided. There's no doubt that the lead, the prolonged leadership contest divided a lot of people. Um, everyone is now split into two camps. Uh, the the well now they're really banding with Michael Gove, who I was very fortunate enough to uh, be allowed into a very intimate Q and A session with him. He's been dubbed as the rebel leader, and basically leading the charge. So he led the charge to to scrap the plans to to uh, uh, bring about that that top uh, that top income tax rate cut. And uh, now they're going after the um, the plan to scrap bankers' bonuses. That's also mm. another contentious issue. Mm. But Alan, it basically started behind me here, uh, the BBC studios. Liz Truss was here in these studios on Sunday morning. That's the day of the, that's, that was the morning of the first day of the conference. And she gave an interview and she was asked Whose idea was it, basically, this mini-budget? And, and uh, you know, it's a bit of a blame game. But she basically threw Quasi under the bus, her Chancellor. She said, oh, no, it was all the Chancellor. And that has now opened up a division between the Chancellor and the Prime Minister, mm. who they're basically best buds. Uh, Liz Truss, I asked someone last night, who, who, who backs Liz Truss? And it's a coalition of people within the party. She actually hasn't really got a solid power base of her own. Unlike Boris, Boris had the Brexiteers and those from the North and the West Midlands. Um, but she hasn't really got a, a, a large sort of band of MPs behind her. It's a, it's a real motley crew but see, behind Jake, her. And uh, one of them was Quasi. Yeah. So, Jake, I mean, you've studied this. This young bloke knows this scene backwards. One question arises out of all of this. At the time Boris Johnson was thrown out by a handful of disaffected parliamentary members, None of this was going on. There was none of this heightened anxiety and meltdowns and all the rest of it. Is that what people are saying now and thinking, well, hang on, Boris was a lot better than this? Yeah. A lot of regret, Alan. There is a lot of regret at the conference about, about letting Boris go. They say he will be back. They say he'll be back, give him two years, and, and he, will, he will be back. Basically, and this is really, really, this is really interesting. Um, basically, there were about four operatives, they say, in Downing Street, who at the start of 2020 consistently plotted against Boris Johnson in a bid to get rid of him, in a bid to get rid of the democratically elected prime minister. There was four of them. And, and that is why we had this drip, drip, drip that occurred. So first was the party, party, the parties could never, it would never stop. When it died down in the media, a new revelation would be leaked to the media. These are people in Downing Street who were planning to get rid of Boris from day one. They, they did not like him. And then the other uh, matter was, so it's the three Ps, Partygate, Patterson and the lobbying yeah. and Pritchard. Yeah. And these were all stories. That, and they used Dominic Cummings as basically a pawn. He wasn't involved in getting rid of Boris Johnson, but they used him as a pawn. Mm. But there was four people in Downing Street who were plotting from day one to oust the democratically elected prime minister. So when there's a lot of regret, but they say Boris will be back. Yeah. He's not at the conference this year, nor is Theresa May. Mm. When you look at this poll, 18% of people polled only a matter of days ago think the trust is doing a good job. 18%, 51% say she could quit. Now, winter's upon the country, the likelihood of energy bills, flu cases, staff shortages. What is the mood as the voters confront all of this? How would you sum it up? Oh, it's pretty dire. It's pretty dire because they don't, they, they, they still are not, 
they're not warm to to a Labor government here. They're really not. I do ask about the Keir Starmer effect. Do you think it's him? Can he be prime minister? And it's the same response, Alan. They're not stoked about Keir Starmer here. Um, and this is very interesting as well. I had dinner last night with someone who worked for Jeremy Corbyn and was a Labor strategist, but wasn't from the far left. He was and he's at the conference because he is the head of trade unions in North England. So to be seen as basically having good relations with the government of the day has to attend the conference. But interesting what he said about Keir Starmer. You would think someone who had who had a very esteemed legal career uh, would tell the truth all the time. What he said was that Keir Starmer has a very poor relationship with the truth and he virtually undermined Jeremy Corbyn from day one. He's also a man who voted for, against Brexit six times. He's got, he's, he is very Machiavellian, uh, Keir Starmer. And the problem that we've got now is because the Tories are so, because there is so much infighting amongst the Conservative Party, the public aren't, they're not turning their attention to their opponents. And that is Labor mm. and Keir Starmer and yeah. really getting into Keir Starmer because apparently if the public knew who the real Keir Starmer was, yeah. uh, they wouldn't like what they saw. All right, two questions before mm. you go. Two questions, brilliant. Your exposition's outstanding. Firstly, your view, I'll put you on the, I'll put you on the heap here. Is it your view that Truss and Kwarteng will survive long enough to see whether this pays off? Uh, I think Kwarteng, look, they want someone uh, too early to install Truss. Uh, they say if they do remove trust, though, that it will have to. It, they cannot go through another leadership contest. That is the consensus here. Cannot have more months of division. So if someone were installed as a new leader, it would be. It would basically be. You know, they're the only candidate. Therefore, uh, less division. Quasi cannot make it. They're already trying to recruit John Redwood, Sir John Redwood, who was in yeah. charge of the yeah, John Redwood, policy. John Redwood, for our viewers' sake, John Thatcher. Redwood contested. Sorry to interrupt you, Jake. Yeah. John Redwood is a veteran. He's about 70 years of age, but very, very well credentialed and contested the leadership yeah. twice, I think, uh, when Kenneth Clark and Hesseltine and all those people uh, were candidates. So Redford, yeah, yes. he would be an interesting and informed and candidate. The other thing I want to ask you before you go, Definitely. of all these people that you've met, and seen and heard and talked to, who were the who was the most impressive? Mm, it, it, well, look, it would have to be the former cabinet minister Michael Gove. He is very impressive. Uh, has a bit of a reputation for being a snake, but who in politics isn't? That's how you climb the greasy pole. So I don't hold that against him. But he was just so insightful when it came to these. Um, look, we're all for tax cuts. We are, we're every. I mean, I've never met anyone who loves higher taxes. But the problem was, and he articulated this, you cannot, what do you say to the electorate when conservatives are meant to be the prudent economic managers? Mm. And we saw in Australia yeah. what happens there when you, once you lose that mantle, it is really hard to regain, well really hard. Well done. Um, your credibility's on the line. So yeah. he basically said, this is not the conservative way. He's not a rebel, he's not a rebel, but this, was, this proposal was never taken to cabinet. The optics are terrible, and and that is not how you level up. See, in 2019, the people who voted for Boris Johnson in the West Midlands, and and by the way, the Conservative mayor of the of the West Midlands, Andy Street, welcomed the U-turn because he knows that the electorate it was going down like a lead balloon. And look, it was a small part of the mini budget, but that's not the point. The point is optics. It was a distraction. And and they've got to move on. And it can't just be this blanket. Uh, let's just cut tax. Mm. Uh, well, what happened then? Jake, we just lost him. We lost him for a bit. <laughs> there we are. Well, we've just lost him. But anyway, we'll wind it up there. <laughs> Outstanding. There's a smart young man, eh? With great political instincts, Jake Thrupp, at the Conservative Party conference in Britain. He may well be witness to historic political times. Before we go, many of you may have gone to CPAC, which stands for Conservative Political Action Conference at the weekend. There, I was lucky enough to speak alongside several other Conservatives from around the world, including former PM Tony Abbott, Nigel Farage, and Senator, Senator Jacinta Price. But there was one moment during the event that stuck out, and no, it wasn't when a mob of socialist protesters tried to barge their way into the conference. The standout moment was when former Liberal politician Nick Minchin said, and I quote, I don't think the Liberal Party needs a lot of changing, unquote. 
The response from the audience can't be ignored. They booed, many shouted rebuttals, and the four Liberals on stage, including Nick Minchin, former Senator Amanda Stoker, Nick Cater and Tina McQueen, were shocked. But despite the jeers, Nick Minchin continued. He said, quote, I'm a profound conservative and have fought every conservative fight in the Liberal Party for 30 years, so I'm not going to take rubbish from you lot. The Liberal Party's values are values you should all support. Go and read We Believe. We stand for small government, low taxes, federation and good government, unquote. Now, don't get me wrong. Nick Minchin is an outstanding human being and an outstanding Australian. He's been a wonderful champion of conservative values in Australia for decades. But he did miss the mark on Sunday. And I can prove my point by following Nick's advice to read the Liberals' We Believe statement. The Liberals' We Believe statement begins by saying, quote, we believe in the inalienable rights and freedoms of all people. And we work towards a lean government that minimises interference in our daily lives, unquote. Clearly that was forgotten during the COVID-19 lockdowns. Next, the statement says, quote, we believe in government that nurtures and encourages its citizens through incentive rather than putting limits on people through the punishing disincentives of burdensome taxes, unquote. Clearly this slipped Josh Frydenberg's mind when he took on over half a trillion dollars of debt as Morrison's treasurer. Then the statement reads, quote, we believe in the freedom of thought, worship, speech, and association. This didn't seem to matter when the government let the police shoot anti-lockdown protesters with rubber bullets. Finally, the statement says that, quote, government should not compete with an efficient private sector, unquote. A belief that contradicts Mr. Morrison's decision to give $20 billion a year in subsidies to green energy magnets like Andrew Forrest and Michael Cannon-Brooks. So Nick, we do thank you for your years of service and we thank you for fronting up to CPAC at the weekend. But please don't tell us that the Liberal Party doesn't need a lot of change. There's no doubt in my mind and in the minds of millions of Australians that the party of Menzies has lost its way. And indeed the people at CPAC and millions across Australia are looking for a political home. The Liberal Party needs to change and provide that home. Well, that's all from me tonight. Thank you for your company. Fred Paul is coming up next. I'll see you tomorrow night at eight o'clock. You are watching ADH. I'm Alan Jones. Good night.